You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast. Want to teach your registrars about behavioural issues in children? Our guest is Dr. Aaron Chambers. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respects to their elders, past, present and their families. Okay, welcome to a, another podcast put on by General Practice Supervisors Australia. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we hope you find this session informative. What to teach your registrars about behaviour issues in children. This would have to be something that lots of registrars, whether they've got kids or not, would find particularly difficult. Even probably a well-established GP would find a lot of this difficult. Tonight we've got Dr Aaron Chambers with us, who hails from Brisbane. And he has a particular interest in childhood development. He's got a background as an RAAF doctor, has done a bit of work in humanitarian missions and EVACs in the Middle East of wounded soldiers. But Aaron being the expert on himself, I'm going to let him give you a little bit more of a rundown as tonight's session progresses. When we were looking at this topic, we decided uh, to have a look at, I guess, what are the most important things about this topic that we should aim to look at. So the first is how to ensure your registrar is confident with what is normal at what age. And I guess that's probably the main thing that, at least for me, it took just time and sometimes even having my own children, you know, made that a lot easier. The second one is what are the behavioural management strategies you can teach parents and carers in a brief office intervention or at least put them in touch with? When should your registrar refer? And some tips for management of children at risk of abuse. So that's pretty much hopefully what we'll cover and we'll see how we go. So why is this topic important? So I guess both as a parent and as a doctor, I really find that, you know, you start out with this little child who comes in after they're born and they're a helpless infant who is completely innocent to the world and and really an unwritten book. And then as they grow, you see them through various stages. And I think that's what we all love about general practice is that, that continuity through time. And eventually we want them to launch successfully into adulthood and become an independent operating human being and be someone who can contribute to society. So I think this is core general practice and this is what we should all be experts at. And I say that to all our registrars is that, you know, pregnancy and early childhood is a time where I think it's probably the the key time, whereas GPs, we can engage with families because they're prepared for change. You know, most people during pregnancy and having a young baby are prepared to change lifelong habits like smoking and alcohol and physical activity. And it's just a time where we can capture that and make such a difference down in the next generation. Most registrars are sold on that straight away, and I know the ones who come to us are, but I think impressing upon them that changing something now for that child is going to make a much bigger difference than changing an antihypertensive for an 85-year-old just purely through time in the future. And I guess parents, when they have children, they're all looking forward to this kind of happy family type image of having children who are growing and thriving and feel supported. But mostly, it's not then that parents come to us. They come to us for a whole lot of different reasons, but mostly I think they tend to ask, is my child normal? What do I do about tantrums is is kind of the next phase. So in that sort of two-year-old, terrible twos, as they enter kindy, often biting comes up and and that's a common reason to present and, and aggression and trouble interacting with other children is kind of the broader topic. And then as they get into school age, I think it tends to be around kids fidgeting all the time or teachers saying they can't sit still or concentrate. And then there's an underlying theme through a lot of that where a parent's asking, you know, has my child got autism or have they got anxiety or have they got ADHD? I guess they're the main reasons that both through my own observation and through some studies done elsewhere that parents present. 
So I'd really like to see some chat comments around what do your registrars struggle with. So perhaps if you could just start jotting some things down in the chat and just let me know what do your registrars struggle with. There's a comment here, the advertising media has a lot to answer for, but we've also got issues with kids not sleeping. Social media having a lot to answer for, I think that's true. You know, a lot of probably that adolescent sort of age group is a very common reason. I haven't actually touched on that because, uh, you know, most of the childhood behavioural issues that I was thinking of are really around that early area. But we do have some stuff around school age presentations as well in the discussion. Somebody's also mentioned um, what, what is normal, advisory, breastfeeding, lack of paediatric psychologists in rural areas, normal age appropriate behaviour versus abnormal. So they're yeah. warming up. Good. Any tips so, on dealing with separated parents who are not on the same page reparenting approaches, unable to get off screen time and tantrums associated with it? Excellent. Okay. Well, we're on the right money then because I think we're going to cover all of that. Screen time. We haven't touched on screen time much. We should do more on that, but we can chat about that at the end. I just jotted down, this is not evidence-based. This is purely the brainstorming around what my registrars tend to come about. I just don't know what they should be able to do when and giving a really logical structure for that, particularly the more junior registrars. Once they've been in for a while, I think they start to pick that up. But the more junior GPT-1 registrar, I think, kind of just goes, well, what are they supposed to be able to do? And I don't think that's picked up well at medical school because they just don't have time to. A plain, what do I do? So, you know, once you've kind of got a problem, what are the interventions that a registrar can do to try and change that outcome? I think is probably a next most common issue. And sort of related to that is where do I go next when I think there is a problem? So now they're starting to kind of synthesize everything and having trouble going, oh, well, I've got this kid, I've kind of got a vague idea of what's going on, but I really don't know, like, what do I do something myself? What do I refer? What do I give the parent a task to do? And then the next one is, what do I have to do first before I refer a child? So a lot of the public hospital systems and child development services in particular are really just slammed with huge volume. And I see that in my children's hospital role, that there's just so, so many kids seeking to access care that they can't possibly do all the therapy for all the kids. And consequently, the waiting lists tend to blow out. And so they have to have fairly stringent criteria around what to do. But actually, you'll find that depending on the service and, and which state you're in and which region you're in, is it metropolitan or rural, they are quite motivated to assess those children relatively early as quick as they can, get an idea of what's going on and then give some help around guidance around which bits to prioritise. So I think giving the registrar a good idea of some baseline stuff that's very safe and effective and will help them get more information in order to do a good referral where it's necessary is probably another important topic to cover. And then what do I do when they're waiting for a long time for assessment or treatment? And I guess that's kind of related question is, is there therapy that you can do in your clinic or locally in your community of practice whilst they're waiting for some public service or some further intervention or getting their NDIS approval? So this is thank you to Daniel James, who's an outstanding GP educator here in Brisbane. It was actually a topic that she ran at one of the General Practice Training Queensland trainer events, where she really made this clear in my own mind about how do we teach our registrars to be independent thinkers. And so I'm bringing this up because I think it's so important to not give them like a picking list of stuff to do for every type of presentation, but really encourage your registrar to think about which model of diagnostics do they use in order to approach a particular problem. And I think, you know, when you, what Danielle said and, and you know, 
by some other reading really indicates that the best decision makers are those who take the time to think about how they're going to make the decision rather than just jumping in and trying something. And so for this one, I tend to throw it open to the registrar and go, you know, I'll present this model to them of the MIRTAR approach of indicate an anatomical or biosocial approach right at the start of their term. And then I'll throw it open to them if they come with a question around child development and go, okay, well, what do you think is going on here? And which of these diagnostic models are you going to use? And it really opens them up. They almost always will sort of go to the biopsychosocial. They might jump to something like iron deficiency or, you know, some physical issue. But it sort of just brings it back to them to think, okay, kid presents with a behavioural issue. I'm going to start to think biopsychosocial. And then the other one is having a very good model of their consultation. So, again, this is another one that's come from somewhere else, neighbours consultation model. Hopefully, all your registrars are really familiar with this, but I find this really useful, and particularly in the days of telehealth, there was, I think it was a GPSA webinar that was done on this, that they really laid this out as a good way to use as a tool to teach your registrar to use telehealth. And by using this model where you connect initially and understand their problem, summarise it back and then hand over for the next piece, give them the safety net and then just tidy everything up afterwards. It actually really applies very well to every consultation, as I'm sure you're aware. But I find it's particularly good because most of this work with childhood behavioural problems is not about a single consultation. And I think having a model like this where the registrar can think in an iterative approach around, okay, I'm connecting with them and finding out where we're going and where we've been, summarising what we've done to date, and then giving them the next piece to do. I think it just breaks it down and gives them a, the opportunity to not think they have to solve everything right here and right now. What I want you to think about is, and this is from the Children's Hospital in Brisbane, and the way I think about this is I don't really sort of teach our registrars so much about how to deal with childhood behavioural disorders. Certainly we do a lot at our, you know, when we have a registrar lunch and talking through individual cases, you know, we do talk about it a lot. But very consciously, we've created a practice environment that scaffolds not only the registrar, but also patients, families and community in order to have all the resources they need to look after the health of that individual and really looks at the integrated care approach. So they, luckily, are thinking very much about how a community-based approach to solving issues involves multiple players and sort of gets to the idea of a local community of practice where you've got the child and family at the centre and then you've got all sorts of things. So, you know, we underestimate the value of libraries and education learning institutions, the foundational aspects of a community and things like having parks and access to public transport. So those things, whilst they're not directly stuff that you can influence on a day-to-day -day basis, thinking about how they impact your community and thinking about the services that are available. So there was one question earlier about how do you manage this where you've got lack of access to psychologists in a rural community. Well, hopefully we've got a couple of ideas as to how you can scaffold that and have the environment that means that people can get access to the care they need or even nip stuff in the bud before it becomes a real problem. This is the model that we use when thinking about all our patients in our community. So it's kind of more a custom thing that we've just thought about and about how, particularly in the paediatric setting, the patient is at the centre of your model. And I talk to this about families. I say, you know, we look after the, your child as an individual, but they don't come here in isolation. They're part of a family and we have to support your family if we're going to get the optimal outcome for your child. And then we talk about, you know, what's going on with the siblings, 
what are the supports you have, like grandparents, what's your family culture, are there any financial or socioeconomic difficulties, how's the diet in the family? And then thinking even more broadly, one of the things I'm very passionate about in general practice is we exist as part of a community. And I think if we think back to, you know, probably John Murtagh's generation of general practitioners, the predominant model was of a great presence in the community. You know, I know my GP when I was a kid who inspired me to become a GP was present on the local school board and, you know, came to local events and talked about health issues that were facing our community. And I think because of some of the financial pressures of general practice and some of the predominant, you know, high turnover models of general practice, this bit's gone missing, but it's so, so important. And I think thinking about and knowing what is in the community that surrounds your practice, you know, for a metropolitan practice like us, it's three kilometres. But I think one of the beauties of working in a rural environment is this bit seems like it's automatically still happens, you know, at least in the rural practices I've worked in briefly, it's social connection is still there. You know, there's very much a sense of like, while well, you're part of the local sporting club. So these things I think are important to talk with, with the parents of the children you're looking after and encourage your registrars to do so because it's those things outside of the patient who's seeing you in the consultation that actually have far, far more bearing upon the health and the behaviour of your child that you're seeing than what you can do individually for that child themselves when they're in your room. So I've got a poll and the question is, how do we create a practice environment that scaffolds patient, family, communities? And I want to know, how do you set your registrar up for automatic success so that they're essentially almost unable to fail because they've got all these things around them and supporting them and are just embedded in your practice systems and culture? So it looks like we've got about 12% of people who've got circle of security or triple P embedded within their practice. For my money, I think that's the most valuable thing you can do. I think it's really, really effective. And if you can get your registrar to sit in or do those sessions, I think it's fantastic for their learning. Parent groups or social connection initiatives. I'd love to hear in the chat exactly what you're doing because we have parents groups that run alongside the practice and it's made a huge difference to the social connectivity of the parents who attend those groups. And I think therefore probably playing a role in peer support for depression and that sort of stuff. I've got a question here, which is how do we embed COS or triple P? For us, we literally just found a psychologist who does circle of security and invited them to come and do it in our practice. And they started doing it. And honestly, initially, there's a bit of setup involved to do it, but it's been incredibly valuable. And, you know, really, it's kind of one of the first tools that I use if there's a family coming in and they've got a child and they're struggling and there's a lot of family stress and worry about the behavior. And I'll talk about this a bit more, but preferring off to do circle of security. It's just so valuable for the parents to do that, that it's really very, very useful. In terms of the mechanics of it, if you can just find someone who's done it before, if you've got a psychologist or anyone else who's willing to go and do circle of security training, then they can facilitate it within your practice. You can access it through some state government services, sometimes free. We've found actually parents are usually more prepared to pay to do it on a weekend because of the timing aspects than to do the free state government weekday services. So that's a consideration. And yeah, it's not super hard if you just put the word out and find someone who's willing to do it, or you can go out and look at doing it yourself or get one of your practice to do it. Let's get to the mechanics of it. So our job here is really to arm the registrars with tools of the trade so that they've got some things to turn to. When you get this complex presentation of a young child who's in distress in some way, or an adolescent for that matter, you've got to have something to turn to for the registrar and give them some stuff to use, both to understand the problem and then to work through it and then to start to implement some solutions. 
at the very starting points, I think most states now have the PEDS tool or something equivalent. So in Queensland, it's the Red Book and the parents evaluation of developmental status is embedded in the Red Book. In the different states, they've got different things. I'm not sure if New South Wales uses it in the Blue Book. I think Victoria do use the PEDS, but essentially it's just a validated screening tool looking for parental concern around whether they've got concerns about the different developmental domains. And hopefully your registrars are kind of used to using that simply because parents put it in front of them. But if they're not, really say, look, these books exist for a reason. They're peer-reviewed each year in Queensland, at least, the things that could be a lot better. But essentially, it's a tool that they can use to kind of detect parental concern and have a fairly validated ability to kind of detect where there might be an issue. And then it's a very simple matter. And I think actually a lot of fellow GPs don't realise, and I didn't realise actually till working in Children's Health Queensland, but child health nurses absolutely love to do an ages and stages questionnaire. So if you've got a local child health clinic or you've got a child health nurse who works in your practice, then you can easily, if there's a problem detected on the PEDS tool, you can refer them off and get them to do an ages and stages questionnaire and request feedback and a result. So really to kind of get an idea of where that child is on their developmental milestone. Now, personally, I don't tend to do that that commonly, but it's definitely a pathway and fairly well endorsed by the child development specialists to do that. And then that way you've done two things. One is you're getting a further assessment for the registrar and an objective view back as to whether this child is on track as far as their developmental domains. The other thing is you've introduced them into one important component of their local community of practice and the child health nurse will be able to pick up and take on some of the load of looking after whatever's going on and take it in a different way to what your registrar might. So I think that's a really useful tool. And if they do have a developmental issue picked up or a behavioural issue picked up in their normal vaccination sort of screening visit, then I think this is a good way to go. The Red Flags Early Identification Guide. Now, I know this is very, very well used around Australia. It's one of the most used tools for looking, you know, once you've detected a potential problem, getting a ballpark of whether or not it's appropriate for that particular point in time. If you haven't already got this tool up on your um, up on your wall, highly recommend it and definitely for your registrars to have this on the wall in their office. So that then very quickly at their vaccination checkups and then annual checkups after that, they can have an idea of whether or not a potential concern meets with a red flag guide that then is requiring referral. And you know it's also good because it kind of takes that risk mitigation approach of saying here are red flags at any age so that you can kind of pick up if you blend a biopsychosocial model and a MIRTAR model, it's kind of picking up pitfalls or serious disorders not to be missed. So that's looking at regression and that sort of stuff, which is much more concerning of a significant developmental disorder. So hopefully they're using this. And this is one of the key tools that I'll give you registrar and say, look, make sure you got this. And that way, anytime an age-related question comes up, they've got a good idea of whether or not the child's meeting that appropriate milestone. And I use that regularly and I pull it up in front of parents too. This you may not know about. So this is for the older child and this was launched last year. So this is the school age red flags guide, which builds on the one that's designed for children below school age. It starts to look a bit more in a slightly different way rather than a purely age-based, what is largely developmental and domains. This one starts to appreciate that a school-age child is much more complicated sometimes and they exist in a complex web of different issues that might be impacting upon a behavioural presentation. So it looks around, you know, is the developmental issue that they're having a learning problem? Maybe they've got ADHD or maybe they've got a cognitive issue that is impacting upon their ability to learn and that's why they're acting out. 
Or is it more directly behavioural? You know, they're having trouble concentrating or are they jumping around and unable to sit still? You know, suggested potential ADHD. Or is there an emotional regulatory problem like aggression that's gone over there? And then in the emotional end, it talks about, you know, they're socially withdrawn or they're having frequent meltdowns. And are they very worried or sad? This tool, as you step through it, so it's got what are the concerns from the parent? And then it prompts for some history taking that your registrar will be able to kind of think about. So the one here, which we'll talk about later on, is trauma. Often it's not brought up, but it's very, very relevant to a lot of presentations. You know, is there domestic violence happening in the family? And it's a question that often is not asked. You know, I know I don't ask it enough. I know that the rate of domestic violence is much higher than the number of families where I know that domestic violence is occurring. So using this to help your registrar prompt for what to talk about, and they can also use this to give to the family and say, here's what we're going to go through, and this is the way we're going to approach it. And then the third part is starting to look specifically through a checklist of things around where are the specific concerns and then start to give clues from that as to which potentially allied health specialty may be able to get involved or what might be the pathology that's underlying it. You know, is it more psychological? Is it developmental or behavioral or something else? And then through it all is this frequency and severity scale. And so that's where it's much harder with developmental concerns to put mild, moderate or severe. And this is to break it down so the registrar can really get a sense of, okay, is it only in a specific circumstance when they're at home doing their homework? Is it just isolated to that? Or is it actually in some tasks, a more wider range of environments? Or is it actually pervasive? And does it mean that it's both home and school and sporting clubs and completely dominating the picture? So, you know, depending on which one of those it is, it'll make it much easier for your registrar to put a good referral in and explain, okay, this is why this is such an important issue. Because I think it's very easy. The parents will often come in and they're completely worried about it, no matter how big an issue or small an issue it is. But this is a good way to kind of then, through the health system, be able to transmit that information in a digestible format for the next clinician. Do go and have a look. So you can just Google school age red flags guide. And if it doesn't come up with that, just uh, school age red flags guide, Children's Health Queensland. It's published by Susan Pagel, who is the same person who did all the groundwork for the original red flags guide. And it's extremely useful. So the second part of it is they talk about this team approach. And I think this is a good thing, again, to get across to your registrar. A, it is a team approach, so they don't have to do all this themselves. And then it allows them to think about where the problems might lie. So making it clear to your registrar, age nine and grade nine is a common point at which kids are changing quite significantly and they might need a bit of extra support. It'll help them think about how to further explore the problems, encourages them to think about how children are not just in their family and they're not just at school. It encourages them to ask questions around the multiple different settings because children's behaviour can be very different between settings and it can give you a big clue. You know, if it's happening just at school, particularly an adolescent and it's just at school, you might think, well, okay, is there some bullying going on? Or if it's only at home, maybe there's a parenting style that might need some adjustment. And then talking about monitoring over time, which is our role and hopefully in conjunction with others, we can do that well. Building on that, I think the common question that was asked, what do I do when I find a problem from the registrars? So as I said, it requires a team approach. And there's a concept, again, that I've borrowed from some of the child development specialists, which is around how much weight should your registrar put on something and giving it a weight or some time. So essentially, their job is to figure out which bit seems most important and they don't have to get it right first time and reinforcing with them, they don't have to. But let them decide which is most likely to be worthwhile to treat after taking that thorough history. 
and then do that, give it some weight and do an intervention that seems appropriate to the particular problem they've identified. Give it a weight, i.e. give it some time and then reassess and see if their intervention has made a difference. And I think this is one thing that it does take time. Registrars do find a little more difficult is that concept of giving something time and seeing if it works. And it also gives them the chance to then go away, meet with you as a supervisor, seek some help from colleagues or discuss it in a tea room and really help them figure out, okay, what do I do when they next come in? And then it'll be also great if they had some brief in-office interventions. So coming back to what we discussed earlier, that circle of security, I imagine all of you are probably quite familiar with circle of security. So it's a very long-standing, well-established, evidence-based intervention for parents, really based on an attachment model of parenting. Their central mantra is kind of hand model of parenting, where it creates a central safe haven for a child to go. And a parent's job is to make a child feel secure. And then they can go out and they explore along these kind of fingers of risk and they go out and something goes wrong and their world falls apart and they might be upset and distressed. But then they come back to that base of security. And that mantra of bigger, their job is to be bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind is the key tool of a parent to be able to help their child to deal with those frustrations and difficulties, regather themselves, and then go out and try again. And so I use that quite commonly in a brief appointment. And a lot of parents, they book maybe a 15-minute or half-an-hour appointment for something like this. And it's something that when you're breaking it down to what can they practically do now, is just reinforcing to them that, you know, sometimes your child will be upset and distressed, but you can be the adult, be bigger, stronger, wiser and kind. And where they're completely losing it, your job is to just sit back and think, okay, I just need to be bigger, stronger, wiser and kind. And I guess for those of you who are parents, you'll probably have had the same experience that I have is where you just really need that little reminder in the back of your head now and then. The other thing that your registrar can do is, and this might be through a formal circle of security program, you know, where it's done very, you know, more formally, or it might be able to be achieved in an office environment, is gently helping that parent identify what their own vulnerabilities are and know what is normal. And, you know, I think sometimes it is easier to connect. I think we've got to be realistic. You know, once you had children yourself, sometimes it is easier to connect with a parent about that. But you certainly learn a lot about yourself once you're a parent. So, you know, just helping parents think about, you know, what is it that they are seeing in their own children that might be triggering off their own vulnerabilities or reminding them of something or are they seeing themselves reflecting their own experience as a child when they deal with their own child. I really endorse that as a way that your registrar can sort of start to think about how to create a good working relationship with the parent. And if they can do circular security, that's a good idea. Dealing with tantrums. This one, there is an excellent new program that you may or may not be aware of. Again, Emerging Minds is a group building a whole lot of tools that are designed for GP learning around childhood emotional and behavioural problems and mental health problems. It's super useful. They've got a whole lot of podcasts. They've got a few active learning modules that you can get a lot of CPD points for. Putting them in touch with that resource, they've got a lot of brief interventions they can look through. So that's really designed around, like I guess, clinician resources that might be useful for your registrar to access. Circle of security I've mentioned. For parents, I think pointing them in touch with raising children is a good one for the registrar to have to be able to point parents to the particular child health topic almost invariably there'll be something on raising children and making sure that they're aware of that resource and will point parents in that direction. I think that's kind of a pretty good way to go. In terms of other practical things to deal with tantrums, really, you know, when a parent comes and talks about this is what I typically do, I'll go through and say, you know, your child's ability to manage this has gone beyond their ability to cope and you've got to jump in with this ability to be the big person and make them feel safe again. 
that's something hopefully if you go through, if you've done SQL security yourself and you go through this rough outline with your registrar, I think they'll find it pretty useful. That's actually really pertinent because we have had a question asking how do you actually do it? How do you do circle of security? Circle of security, it's literally a multi-part facilitated parent group where they go through that model back there. So it's probably beyond the scope of this to go into about how do you do it per se. You know, really, if you want to be a circle of security facilitator, you've got to go away and do the circle of security training, which I think is really worthwhile. And if you're kind of interested, definitely go and do as many parenting courses as you can. Even if you're not a parent, I think it's super useful to do, to understand how children tick and how our own experiences as a child influence our parenting. But the concept is kind of essentially that construct that I was talking about and going and doing it is about the parents reflecting on what's happening for their child and thinking about how to be bigger, stronger, wiser and kind. Pam said, is it partly teaching the parent the concepts and supporting them in their parenting? Essentially, yeah, it's like a really brief intervention just to talk about this is a concept, help them understand it and then hopefully inspire them to go away and think about participating in a parenting course. So there's also another one called Toolbox Parenting which is done as a New Zealand original thing. Circle of security, you know, they're quite similar to each other, to be perfectly honest. There's one, two, three magic, which is not something I sort of recommend or have done, but a lot of other clinicians will recommend that. And triple P is a bit more behavioral about if this happens, sort of do this. So it depends on the concept, but I think circle of security does sort of stand in pretty good stead. So I wanted to talk a little bit about adverse childhood experiences. And I noticed that no one said, yes, they've embedded this in their practice. We are certainly intending to and haven't yet embedded it either, but you may or may not be aware of the Adverse Childhood Experiences study over in the US. That study really looked at like, what is the lifelong impact of adverse childhood experiences? And it just makes sense because we all know the significant harm that trauma causes, but the rate of adverse childhood experiences, it is just phenomenal. And the level of additional adverse experiences, when you add them on top of each other, Essentially, you have a dose response curve on all sorts of things like incidents of heart disease, like they were talking about smoking, about pretty much you name it in terms of a physical health measure that's very long-term and lifelong, has a direct dose response curve to an adverse childhood experience. Because of that intimate relationship, we need to be thinking about what is happening to the children in our communities and then thinking about how we can have some impact upon that. Now, a lot of this sits in the world of social work and uh, Department of Child Safety, but I argue that a lot of it actually is our responsibility because we are one of Australia's most trusted professions. We have a relationship with children, you know, really from the seven-day check and then at their six-week vaccination, and you have a great opportunity to understand that family and create the relationship. And I think this is something that we need to help teach our registrars to think about. But I know that a common mistake is delving into it too quickly before building that relationship of trust. And it's a great way to scare someone off. If you delve into this too early and don't have a pathway to address it, you can potentially cause more harm than good. So really get him to think about it and get them to have as a goal of building the relationship with their patients to be able to have a trusting environment in order to bring those things up and discuss it and then have them also ensure they have a plan to address it should be any concerns raised. Talking to your registrar whilst thinking about childhood behaviour, you know, talking about adverse childhood experiences and then what is their threshold for reporting to child safety, making sure that they know how to report or who to contact for a child safety concern. For example, here it's your regional intake service, but it's a very state-based thing. So you'd want to make sure you've got that. And if you aren't sure yourself, you know, make sure you go through it with your registrar because these things change so quickly that you really have to do update your practice contacts, et cetera. 
and then make sure that they've also got the next step to go is that if they do get to the point where they recognize as just happened to me today i was talking to a family where i've been seeing them for quite a while and for the first time some quite significant domestic violence was disclosed how are they going to address that because i think sometimes it's beyond our resources to deal with and definitely is likely to be beyond the resources of the registrar to deal with so who are they going to turn to now for example in our local area we've got this fantastic group funded by mica called brisbane domestic violence service we provide a really comprehensive social support for families where there is domestic violence going on. But making sure that your registrar has somewhere to go so that, that when they're looking at this and thinking about it, they've got somewhere to point them afterwards. Now, if you haven't seen the Adverse Childhood Experiences questionnaire, it is available online. You can just Google ACES questionnaire or ACED Adverse Childhood Experience Questionnaire and I encourage you to go through it and have a look and just see how many of your patients might answer yes to some of those questions. Yeah, so we had Pam who said, I sometimes feel like I reparent the parents. Not sure how to teach this to registrars because parents often can have background of trauma. Yep, because, you know, it's very hard to achieve that in an office environment all the time. But if you've got the skills and you've done some more training, you're probably, I mean, I imagine most of you are more skilled than I am at this sort of stuff, then I think that is what it takes is to allow people in a supportive environment to reflect on what might be their background has contributed to transferring this on and attempt to make a change because I think parents are often motivated to do so. And like any assessing uh, readiness for change, you know, it's one of our core skills. And even if your registrar doesn't have the answer as to how to address that, they might be able to encourage a parent to take steps to address it themselves. A very special group here is children in out-of-home care who are often being, you know, subject to adverse childhood experiences prior to coming into out-of-home care. So this group really describes the care of children and young people under 18 who are unable to live with their family. And it typically is very severe in abuse and neglect because, you know, they're kind of the tip of the iceberg typically. This group are much more at risk of emotional behavioural problems um, and will be overrepresented in the people who are uh, presenting for this type of problem. Having said that, I know depending on the area you're in, you may or may not have many kids in out-of-home care, but it's really important to identify them and make sure that their checks are even more thorough because these kids really deserve absolutely gold-plated care in order to help mitigate some of the impact of their early life experiences. They're also at higher risk of ADHD of eating disorders, obesity, substance abuse, tobacco use, anxiety, mood or personality disorders. So this is really saying that, you know, these kids are the ones who have had the most severe adverse childhood experiences. And this is already the starts of exactly what they indicated in that ACEs study that results in lifelong health impacts and results in a 20 year reduced life expectancy. So because they're getting moved from pillar to post um, and often under the care of multiple agencies, comprehensive coordinated management is absolutely essential. And there is a national clinical assessment framework that you can guide your registrar to use. Um, and I know, at least in our area, there is a tool through Health Pathways that the registrar can use in order to just go through and it steps them through. It's basically a, a bit like a health assessment and it goes through all the things that they require to be checked. So hopefully that addresses a little bit in children out of home care. It isn't the key focus of tonight, but I think it's an important population to be aware that they are at higher risk of emotional regulatory problems. So then what are the key messages for registrars? And I guess I haven't like super strongly addressed like which allied health specialty they send them to, because I think we can get into that in great detail, but I think you're well placed to help guide them once they've gathered that data and they've got a framework for thinking about this, hopefully you're well-placed to guide them as to what's available in your local community and community practice to help start figuring out what to do about that particular child. 
What I try to impress upon the registrar is that for them to learn that it is okay to have uncertainty and appreciate that a diagnosis will take time. You know, they need to break down the consultations and have kind of a staged approach. So if the parent comes in saying they want a mental health care plan for their child, well, you know, that might not be achievable today. Set the expectations and go, okay, well, when have you booked for a psychologist or why are you wanting that mental health care plan? And so let's use today to gather some data and then how about we get you back in order to define that and then build it further. One message that I know anyone who works in early development says always refer early if a parent has concerns and just reiterating that it's a team effort. There's no harm in referring a child early where if they've got like a gross motor delay, no harm in referring them early to a physio. If they're having toileting difficulty, no harm in referring them to OT. And if they're having emotional regulatory problems um, early on, no harm in referring to a psychologist. Because at worst, it'll be an assessment. They'll say, look, you're well within normal milestones. At best, you've changed that trajectory early. Just like treating blood pressure early changes the trajectory for mortality, same, changing the trajectory of a behavioural concern can change the trajectory of that down the track. And I think it's also important, sort of on that front, a lot of registrars seem to be concerned about, you know, oh, can I use the chronic disease management items or mental health care items if I don't know the diagnosis? And I think we have to be pretty pragmatic here is that the evidence says that childhood behavioural disorders are very nebulous and they have a relatively high risk of going on to have adult pathology that will have a defined diagnosis. But often you can't differentiate it, you know, initially. So the same child who might have ADHD or autism or anxiety, in the first instance, you might not be able to tease that out. And it's actually the fact that they have a functional impairment of some sort and they have symptoms suggestive of various possible difficulties means that they need intervention and they have some sort of diagnosis, but we're just still defining it. So I think that's the way I tend to break it down for a registrar. You know, don't go and refer someone who hasn't got any pathology, but if they've got pathology, just because you haven't yet completely clearly defined it doesn't mean they're not eligible. Impressing upon your registrars that their most valuable tool is listening in time and building a relationship with the family because it's that relationship of trust that can then mean that they can get out more of the details that might be driving. And it might take them, you know, six or eight or 10 consultations before they get that clue that there's domestic violence in the family or actually they realise, hang on, a one or other parent is depressed or actually they're having incredible financial difficulty or the teenagers not disclose the fact that they actually had some experience of bullying or abuse at a previous point in time. There's a keen observation here from Pam again who says, and refer early if grandma has concerns. Yes. Yeah, never ignore the grandparent, actually. And I think they, well, have a fantastic ability to provide input and wisdom to their, um, to their own children, don't they? Encourage a registrar, if possible, to attend a parenting course, either as a parent or as a professional. And I'll put down a list of the ones that I tend to think are the most valuable. And get them to know their local community of practice. Hopefully, at their orientation, you've already done that. Talk to them and introduce them. And hopefully, they've gone to meet or even spend a session with a local physio or OT or psychologist and get to know what they can and can't do and what referral pathways they might have. Um, I actually, I'd include local child health nursing or community centre in that, if possible. So I've got a couple of cases to briefly run through, but I sort of wanted to end this sort of didactic part. Let's reflect and see how we've gone. So by the end of this, we said you'd be able to teach your registrar about how to ensure your registrar is confident in what is normal at what age. So really to just reiterate, I'd say, you know, making sure they've got the red flags guide and the school age red flags guide and that they're using the PEDS tool in their child developmental checks and using that as a tool to encourage a conversation with parents about behaviour and development. 
what can you teach your registrar about behavioural management strategies to teach parents and carers? Really, that's that circle of security model, I think, is a really good idea. The other one I didn't mention, actually, is the zones of regulation is really useful. So really, that's that traffic light system where they use green light for good, calm emotions, orange from getting a bit heated and red to I'm totally losing and I need to separate myself. It's called zones of regulation and it's, it's something that's kind of useful to kind of talk to parents about. Typically, I don't really do that myself. I, I mention it and then I'll refer them off to a local psychologist to kind of go through that or perhaps a, a local occupational therapist to really look at giving the child some insight into their own emotional regulation and being able to kind of assess themselves and understand what to do. The other really common thing I use is Smiling Mind. I didn't mention that earlier either, but Smiling Mind is a super good app. I'm sure you're aware of it. It's got some age-based things to break down and you can have great success with that. It's literally just saying, look, try the Smiling Mind thing. You're not going to be able to get in with the psychologist for ages. Do this every night. Get your kid to have a listen to the Smiling Mind app and go through the module at the appropriate age range. And it can make a huge difference and it's free and it's worthwhile giving a go whilst you're waiting for something else to do. Being able to tell you registrar when to refer or have them understand when to refer, hopefully the key message there is make sure they know to refer early, make sure they know how to gather the information and put it together to create a good referral using those tools that they've got available. And then tips for the management of children at risk of abuse. I guess that's where we talked about the adverse childhood experiences and thinking about how you've structured your practice to innately set the registrars up for success and the families in your community. And thinking about, if you're interested, think about how you could implement an approach to adverse childhood experiences in your practice. So this first case, and I've kept this fairly brief, it's really about your registrar calls you about a three-year-old who's been brought in by his parents due to kindy requesting medical clearance to return after they bit another child. You've got mum in tears and blaming herself and she's really worried that her child has autism. So what do you do in that situation to assist your registrar? Bearing in mind you've got a full list and you haven't got a lot of time to really work with them on this one. How might you help your registrar? Someone's raised their hand. I wonder um, what would you do to assist your registrar? I'd probably try and find out a little bit more about the family history around this story, the family dynamics. Has this child been a problem before at all? The initial advice I would give as a parent would be saying, you know, biting is often an impetuous act. Uh, the three-year-old doesn't sit and premeditate it and that usually it's just an impetuous reaction and that it may happen from time to time and that hopefully we could prevent this and deal with the stresses that the child might have been feeling that might have triggered it for them it would be a long shot to think that this was connected to any idea of autism and for mum in tears I'd try to reassure her that you know it's a tough road and this is what parenting's about but you know we can all learn from this situation that's my on-the-spot answer to the situation I mean, I think I'd probably do roughly the same, actually, and um, and just reinforce that, you know, developmentally, biting in a three-year-old is relatively normal. I'd probably start to look about, okay, what's the context? Does this come on the background of a lot of other events? And I agree, you know, just like you said, is there something going on in the family that makes this a much more significant event than just a one-off random three-year-old getting cranky and biting another child and starting to get a little bit on the older end, but still totally within a potentially normal behaviour for age? 
and it's surprisingly common in daycare environments. I think it's also just an aside, it's a bit of a shame that this comes, and I don't know what happens in your communities, but quite often there's a lot of shaming around children of this age where they bite another child and they can get so heated. I've seen parents have to leave kindies where their child has bit another at a developmentally appropriate age. It's sort of disappointing that I thought we could probably be a bit bigger than that and not shame either the child or the other parents, but it, nevertheless, it does seem to happen. And for this one, I'd really say to the registrar, look, you know, probably try and arrange a follow-up with mum, depending on how she's feeling and in knowledge of the overall circumstance. Try and get her back and see what's going on for her and her mental health and see if there's any other pressures that might make this a much more significant event than a one-off fight. And then encouraging the registrar to use some sort of mechanism to really explore those concerns around autism, you know, bearing in mind it's a multiple domain disorder and maybe using something like the red flags guide to kind of go, okay, do they have any specific deficits in any developmental domain? And see what might be driving that question. Because it's very common, and I think, you know, as soon as there's any social difficulty, often the, the question's brought up, really helping your registrar figure out what can they do. So you're not going to have much time in this one, but I think the key points here would be to reassure, make sure you plan follow-up both for mum and the child, and have a follow-up plan for the question around autism. Just another quick case, really, to just get some of the key principles. Your registrar has a patient coming back this week to see them, and they've caught you at lunchtime to kind of discuss what are they going to do when they come back. Last week, mum and little six-year-old Johnny came in due to a sprained ankle. It was a pretty standard musculoskeletal presentation. But during the consultation, mum said that, oh, she was there with a sprained ankle, but actually she wants a mental health care plan due to Johnny's anxiety. And your registrar, being very diligent, started to get a bit of a history and found out that Johnny's been having meltdowns at the school gates. The teacher has told mum he can't sit still, he's unable to stick to tasks and is having trouble with peer relationships and often will be seen sitting alone and doesn't seem to really have developed any friends at school. Mum's finding that leaving the house and moving on from one task to another is becoming next to impossible. And your registrar is asking you, okay, what do I do next? Your job is to advise your registrar over your lunch. What are you going to do about what's a somewhat more complex presentation than the previous case? If you're keen, we'd love to have your hand up if you would like to make some comments around how you would advise your registrar to do next with this case. We can put some comments in the chat function. Now, I've just enabled John just because I know John from way back and he, <laughs> and he, and he, <laughs> that's it. And he put a great answer to the last question. So, John, what would you do? Well, I think the approach that Aaron has been taking all night is to firstly let the registrar know that the most important thing that they can do at this stage is to listen to the mother's concerns and to gain the mother's confidence and, in other words, flesh out a bit more of the history of what's been going on. And then to formally take a history which goes right back to the pregnancy and the birth and what happened in the perinatal period. Was the mum depressed during that period? How did the child develop from that time? Whether they had any intercurrent illnesses during their growth and developments thus far? So you get some idea of the child's development. I think it's also important to get an idea of what constitutes their family and whether they have siblings, whether the other children are older or younger than the child in question, whether there's been any family history of any childhood problems of this nature, whether on the mother's side or the father's side. 
you need to understand, I think, the whole dynamics of the child's upbringing and the child's place in that family before you can make a reasonable mental health care plan. So it will take some time. It's not the sort of thing you can do on the run, I don't believe. Fantastic answer, John. I can't really add to that. You're right. It is impossible to do on the run. And understanding the child's trajectory and their context with their family and the community around them, I think, is exactly the crux of this. And I think if you want to give them a specific tool to kind of use to help scaffold that, I'd go back to the school age red flags guide because that steps them through and helps them use a model to kind of talk to them about exactly all of those things. It doesn't necessarily delve back into as much past history, which I think you really, you know, you highlighted that and I should have actually probably made that much more clear throughout this. But the previous history and the birth history is very, very important. But yeah, using that school age red flags guide, it can help them think about what are the potential factors that are involved in this. This one's intentionally grey. You know, I don't think you can say just looking at this, whether this is anxiety or is it that they've got an attention problem or is it they've got perhaps something like autism where they're just really having trouble with changing and transitioning between cognitive sets and understanding the social context within which they've found themselves. It's helping your registrar understand exactly that, you know, that this is quite complex and they're not going to be able to get it in one consultation and they're going to have to make a structured plan for following up and helping the registrar understand that people get therapy and just telling their story and they get understanding of their own situation through vocalising what their own problem is. And so therefore that's the value that they might be giving the parent even before they start any sort of structured evidence-based intervention. The Emerging Minds link, I'd draw your attention to that again. It does very much sort of enunciate that idea of the breaking down of the consultation into various steps. So do think about that. I know Health Pathways isn't everywhere around the country, although a lot of areas do use it. That approach to the child in out-of-home care has been led by sort of Metro South here in Queensland and Health Pathways referenced there, but I know there are other versions that have made their way around different states, depending if you do have Health Pathways. You may or may not have noticed, I think it was the latest Australian family position or whatever the new name for it is, was around neurodiversity just this month. So there are a few good articles in there that are worthwhile to read around a proportion of this exact question. That's fantastic, Aaron. Thanks very much for your time tonight. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.